Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred was talking to me about a statistical question, which is the sort of question we like asking at parties and other places we're trying to impress Still, people. When we want to stay alone in the corner somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Five it was partners. actually, it was a question that I I was bringing it up to you because one of our listeners or readers uh, brought it up and they were looking at an article on uh, tolerance intervals. I think it was on tolerance intervals. And the question was, well, what's the difference between a tolerance interval and a confidence interval? And of course, I responded as a statistician, and I got a response back real quick, saying, "Well, that's too technical. I don't understand." So I thought I'd ask you, Chris, because you can oh. you do amazing animations real quick. Maybe that's a good yeah. future webinar, you know. So yeah. wave your hands for the podcast, and everybody will get it just really clear. <laughs> right. But I mean, so I think there's actually three different statistical intervals in play. In this question, I only talked about two of them, but there's there's a distinct difference between a confidence interval, a tolerance interval, and a prediction interval. Mm -hmm. Is that right, or are there more? Yeah. I'm sure there's more. Yeah, I think that, I think statisticians make too much about trying to separate these three definitions, and I think there's some use, some some benefit in terms of having technical definitions that apply to different areas, but. Uh, in some cases, you know, they can be used interchangeably and we still produce good products at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but long story short, um, let's just say you're, you're manufacturing something and uh, let's, I don't know, what's, what's something you manufacture where a characteristic is important, a measurable characteristic? Um, maybe I use bread when I'm doing my yeah. physical process capability courses and maybe... I think I, t I told you one day that actually there's this metric in bread, which I love. It's called chewability. And, it's, and they can measure it, right? They, you can measure it. Yeah, there's a testing rig uh, that can be put, uh, it can be used on, on bread to measure how chewable a bread is. And it's a, it combines, you know, how much um, deformation the bread can go. And resistance and kinds yeah. of weird stuff, yeah. And how much it springs back and how long it takes before it springs, all those sorts of things. Anyway, so either way, there's, there's a, a, a number associated with the quality of bread. It's usually, in, in, it's measured in terms of newtons, actually, even though it's not a force per se. But either way, so mm -hmm. chewability of bread is usually in the order of about seven. And let's just say six and a half is not chewable enough, and seven and a half is too chewy. Uh, too chewable, whatever that might mean. You pull your dentures off, you know, out. Kind of, yeah, right. <laughs> and so when, you, when, you, when you're baking bread, the normal distribution does a really good job of describing its chewability, how, how the different chewability numbers will, will, will change from each slice of bread you, you observe or test. Well, and that makes sense because there's – you know, the different thicknesses of the bread pans, it's baked in the location in the oven, the right. particular details of the mixture and moisture that's in the dough that you're put in there. Uh, it has all these little perturbations that can make it more or less chewable. And that's kind of why normal would work. 
Right, and it's it's and for those you know we've done talked about this a lot. The the normal distribution or the bell curve, um, it has been proven to model random processes that are themselves a sum of lots of other random processes. So all right. those things you just talked about, Fred, will sort of add up mm -hmm. to influence the chewability of bread. Um, now I'm hungry, Fred. We might have to stop this podcast because that's. A, <laughs> well, I've got two two loaves I have to bake after we get done with this. So I'll tell you how it well, comes you out. And I don't think sending it to you will do a disservice, but. Uh, um. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and so, and, and let's, let's just say we, we study our baking process and we realize, you know what, our, our bread chewability, it's, it's at, on average, it's seven, which is exactly where we want it to be. And we might be able to, to, um, to create a bell curve or use a bell curve to model how, each loaf of bread varies ever so slightly from seven, and we might be able to say, oh, you know what, with with this bell curve we fit, 95% uh, of the chewability measurements that we take from our bread coming off the line fall between 6.8 and 7.2. Right. Now that's measuring every single one. So you are getting essentially a population right. distribution here. Right. Well, you could also do it from a sample. You could just test every every tenth one or what have you. Mm -hmm. But it wouldn't change. You, you would get a mean. Say, you get a mean in a, a variance, and you could estimate a normal distribution from that, or, yep. or describe a normal distribution. Yeah. Right. Or you could use another distribution that tends to do a better job of fitting. Well, it's just there's a, as you know, there's a myriad of ways you can analyze data and say, you know what, we're actually. We can see that of the bread that we've just produced, 95% of the bread will have a chewability between 6.8 and 7.2. Okay. We probably shouldn't get too, too, too wet down on how we get there. Let's just say right. we get there and we happen to use a bell curve. That's tolerance interval. A tolerance interval applies to a measurable characteristic. And so of the individual pieces, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So every, you were saying we make a thousand pieces of bread and we measure some of it. And now we know that 95% of them are between these two values. It's of right. the individual values. Yeah. Of the actual measurable characteristic of something you're, you're creating. Okay. But, and then obviously you talked about the mean. And so that the mean is, like, is the average, the arithmetic average. And perhaps we had to estimate the arithmetic average as part of our process to coming up with what we think the tolerance interval is. And the tolerance interval always has to be combined with a percentage. So the 95% tolerance interval is the interval within which we think 95% of our bread chewability will fall. But let's just say we're now not going to focus on the, uh, on the actual measurable characteristic itself, but instead we're going to focus on the a parameter of that random process and the mean is an example of a parameter. It's a, essentially a factor on which the random process appears to be governed. And of course, the mean's a very important one when we have a bell curve because it describes where the middle of the bell curve is. Right, and then variance would be another one. And variance, kurtosis one, yeah. and uh, what's the Characteristic other Characteristic live, skewness. Yeah, skewness, yeah. yeah. And, and there's all kinds of things we take 
a group of data, whether most mm-hmm. often a sample, right? But mm-hmm. it could be the whole population measurement. And we say, well, what's, where is it centered at? Where is it located? And we say, well, okay, right. that's the mean. And that's a calculation from that data. It's not the individual data points themselves. No, it's a calculation, exactly. f- calculated element from describing that data set. Right. So the random process is going to be, for all intents and purposes, a function of the mean that you uncover and the standard deviation that you estimate for, at least for the bell curve, that is. Um, yep. And, but those are parameters, like you said, they're, they're not measurable characteristics. They are, uh, the, the mean, like in, in the same way, what, what's the average number you roll when you roll a dice? The average number you roll is 3.5. You, yep. can't, you can't roll a 3.5, um, but that's the average number you roll when you roll a dice because it's not a measurable characteristic. It's a parameter. Um, so the mean is a parameter of the random process, which you can't directly measure. And because you can't directly measure it, you can only infer information about it. You, you can never directly measure it. You can only ever infer uh, information about these parameters, which you observe or you study through literature, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the confidence interval represents your understanding of what that parameter is. So the tolerance is a measure of your product. And the confidence is a measure of you. And the confidence is, is uh, if we have a confidence interval, 90% confidence interval for our mean being between 6.9 and 7.1, that means that we're 90% confidence the true, true value of the mean lies between um, those, two, those two boundaries. Well, does confidence only apply, confidence intervals only apply one, on parameters, but two, when using a sample from a population. Because if we have 100% of the population measured, we, we, there's no uncertainty of where the mean is because we have all of the measurements other than measurement error. Right. And this is where we get into debates between statisticians because some will argue that you can create confidence intervals based on expert judgment, which involves no samples. Um, and some will say, aren't, no. Aren't, aren't we clever? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, but uh, and that's where you, uh, and that's actually a really powerful way of, of generating confidence intervals because um, if you have people who've been around a manufacturing process for a while, um, a bread ba- a baker who bakes bread and routinely measures um, chewability, they would be able to say, oh yeah, there's that one time in 1998 where. We got this flat. We tried this flour, and it's this. It was down on this, and more on that, and that increased the chewability this way. It, it, that mm-hmm. profound corporate knowledge is very valuable. So if you if you ask a baker, like, what do you think the chewability of this bread's going to be? It's a, it's a lot of information in there. Yeah. So and and they but they have that amount of knowledge to give you a rational number. Right, you know, value or or estimate of what the measurements will be. Yeah, and and it comes in handy because if your if your measurement system, if what measures the chewability is out of whack, you know somebody with enough experience will go, well, that doesn't that doesn't seem to be right. Let's check it. Whereas right. somebody that doesn't know what they're doing, they'll get a number and they go, oh, it's fifteen. With fifteen equates to chewing on beef jerky. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's nowhere near what your bread is, and it's like, all right, well, something's not right here. It's right, but if you don't know, it's a number, and you you run off with it. That's different than what I think of as a statistical confidence interval, though, because what right. you said it's it's where this where the true parameter is likely to 
exist based on the information you have. Right. And and I think, um, and, and so some of you might be saying, well, that's just semantics. And to an extent it is, but you say the tolerance applies to a measurable characteristic. Tolerance interval is applies to the measurable characteristic and a confidence interval applies to our understanding of a parameter. And some of us might be saying, well, isn't a tolerance interval just a confidence interval on a measurable characteristic? And from one perspective, you're right. But the reason why they're different, technically very different, is because a confidence interval technically applies to a parameter, the fewer samples you have, the wider your confidence interval is. And the wider the confidence interval, the less confidence you have. There's this square root of n that gets involved in there, and, and yeah, being the number of samples you have, and so it, it depending on the model, yeah. But the square root of n is a really good guess about how how big your confidence interval gets. Mm-hmm. So if you have one or two or three data points, your confidence interval is very very wide. But technically, your tolerance interval won't change over you, if you have smaller samples. It will become more and more accurate when you have more samples. And you're able to work out, you know, the the range within which those chewability measurements are going to fall, but technically your tolerance interval won't change, or the 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 width of the of the tolerance interval won't change, the um if you get more and more samples, the accurate the accuracy will be refined, but it won't inherently get wider. Right, it's not a direct correlation or or factor of width to sample size. Right, and that's one of the hit- biggest differences between confidence and tolerance um in a way tolerance interval is is our best guess at where 95 percent of those um chewability factors are going chewability measurements are going to fall within whereas confidence is a measure of what is our best guess you know what what guesses could we have right. on the parameters which we get the tolerance interval from now is tolerance intervals is it related to this i'm trying to think of the name of the is it Chevy Chef? Um, yeah. Well, what's the name of that? There's some law or rule or whatever. I think that this famous Russian statistician, I think he's Russian, Chevy Chef, yep. um, came up with it. But it was independent of any distribution. In like three quarters of all data points will be with, has this certain range um, based on, on your data. Um but it's very vague. <laughs> it's great big wide swaths of ranges. Right. Where if you know a little bit about the distribution, then the tolerance intervals be, are much smaller than what Chevy Chess uh, inequality, I think is what it was called. Is that right? Yeah. And I don't know how you pronounce his name. I think it, I've heard it Chevy Chev. Well, it's spelled like, like six that. different ways too. It's, yeah, true. It's, it's, it's not written in the um, English alphabet so you guys use acrylic language so there's always something that that you lose as i understand it um well well jebby chef's theorem is is mostly useful when the only thing you have is a standard deviation and a mean and nothing else you don't mm-hmm. have um you don't know it's normal or viable or skewed or not skewed right. or bimodal or whatever and yeah if you have the mean and standard deviation then you know with so many samples or you, you're within so many standard deviation of the mean it covers 75 percent of it i think it was like two, two standard deviation covers 75 it all the data points will be with within two standard deviations will be within some value some range right. if i'm saying that right yeah 
it's a, and it's an inequality because it gives you the upper limit on how many data points can be um, you'd expect to be within a certain range. Right. But as soon as you say it's it's normal distribution, then you use the mean and standard deviation directly. Right. Or if it's a Weibull distribution, you use the, the, the scale and shape parameter um, because you now have more information. And so Chebyshev's um, inequality is applied to scenarios where the only thing you know is the mean and the standard deviation and not the model. And even then it gives you an upper limit on how many data points you expect to have within a certain range away from the mean. Right. And one of the other things I run into is that Chebyshev's theorem doesn't apply when you only have a mean. If you don't right. know the standard deviation, you don't know anything. So once again, that's right. why I say don't use MTBF. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, um, so that is related to tolerance, but it's in the case when you yes. really don't know the distribution. Right. In which case, if it's a million-dollar decision, find the distribution. <laughs> yeah, find, find the distribution because um, it's a – it's a rough estimate using Chebyshev. It's right. the upper limit, and yeah, it's not precise enough for a million dollars. It's not precise enough for a $10 decision, in my opinion, but whatever. It's really useful if, you, if for whatever reason, you can only ever get the main sand deviation, but yeah. there's precious few scenarios where that is a limit. Yeah. Well, you haven't talked to the vendors I've been talking to. <laughs> I mean, don't, 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 uh, I'm excluding the, the shortcomings of the human ego. There you go. All <laughs> no. right. So w one of the other ones I mentioned at the top was that there's a prediction interval. What's right. that about? Because I, I just draw a complete blank on it. I know I studied it. That was one of those learned it enough and then dumped it because I've never used it. And that's, and that's a third one. And so that's third one. The, the, the prediction interval is essentially what's going to happen in the future. And so the tolerance interval technically applies to... Um, uh, a population that you've studied. So you, if that bread scenario, you might be measuring every tenth loaf of bread. You can't measure every loaf of bread because it takes time and money and test, resources, and and it's destructive. When tests, you test for right, yeah, if you have to take a slice of bread, put it on a machine, and as a rule, customers frown upon having this now maggle slice of bread shoved back in its loaf. And being sold at the same price. Well, I could see else. in a bakery you would do all your testing just before breakfast or lunch or something like that. So now you have all this bread ready for toasting. That's just yeah, me, it, you know, thinking yield and <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. But um so uh, the prediction interval is is what's gonna happen in the future. And now people become uh Again, this is where semantics can sometimes get in the way because if you know the tolerance interval for that for today's loaf of bread, loaves of bread, shouldn't that then give you some idea of um, what's going to happen tomorrow? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, so the tolerance interval can often be reasonably um, uh, reasonably concluded to be. Uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, if that makes sense. Uh, and it's on the individual measurements that we make in the true ability. Right. And, but prediction interval can also allow for a lack of confidence in the parameters. So if your best guess at the mean and the best guess at the standard deviation means 
that the tolerance interval is this. Then for prediction intervals, there are mathematical and statistical things you can do to take into consideration. Well, that might be based on your best guess of mean and, and standard deviation, but uh, here you, you've given us confidence intervals on those on those two values, so the prediction interval will be a little bit wider because we're going to take that into consideration. And but prediction interval is is uh, is used a lot in in both frequentist statistics and Bayesian statistics. Um, and then there's all sorts of other things like the credible interval for Bayesian analysis and all sorts of other stuff, which I just think if you need to know the difference between a credible interval and a confidence interval or a predictive in interval, then you're halfway through a dissertation for a PhD or something. It's yeah. just not <laughs> useful for everyday decision making. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's probably why I forgot about a lot of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, I've used confidence intervals, you know, on a regular basis. And somebody gives me right. a pile of data, it's a sample, and where's the actual mean going to exist? And is the the average that we're producing and filling this bottle or, you know, the size of this loaf, is it going to fit in the packaging? What's, what's our ability to do that? And tolerance would be a between those two, I could answer vast majority of the questions that we we're interested in and, and go with it. So most of my experience has been confidence intervals. And then on occasion, it just made more sense because we're talking about individuals. So we'll, we'll calculate a tolerance interval. Um, but yeah, I've almost never. Now, the only time I, I even think about prediction intervals is when I'm doing a like a warranty analysis and like what's next month's warranty value going to be and i don't know that that the way we actually do that is a prediction interval i think we extrapolate the existing distribution and say all right well they're a month older now so we expect the probability of all these failures to occur times how many is still out there and then we get a number but we don't mm -hmm. i don't remember ever applying a prediction interval to those calculations no, I mean, again, a prediction interval can apply to a single life of bread as well, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, so, so if you were if very we, interested in what's the likelihood that the next time, next loaf of bread that we produce and measure will be within certain range, right. that would be a prediction interval. Right. Um, is that what they do when the inspectors come to see how well you're meeting the requirements? You run a prediction interval <laughs> thing and it's kind of like the dice roll. If, oh, I, don't I don't even know, know that I've ever done that in that case either. It's like, what's the no, chance of us doing it? I don't know, actually. But, uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, if, you, if your process isn't changing from day to day, um, these statistics don't matter a whole lot. It's way more important, for example, to, to use an approach like statistical process control to firstly make sure your process is in control. Yeah, so nice stable, over, consistently right. making good, chewable, appropriately chewable loaves of bread, say seven. Right. So you know that if you turn the temperature up or too much, too high, it's going to do this. If you turn the temperature too low, it's going to do that. You know that if the fan that's inside the oven turns off so the top loaves of bread get more heat, the bottom loaves of bread, that's that's what you know. really understanding or controlling your process is all about. Statistical process control is really good at helping you uncover scenarios where you might not be as in control as you might think. Um, yeah. and that could be, for example, like a good example is where that fan that circulates that hot air, all of a sudden there's an obstruction that you can't see 
And the first thing that you notice is that the chewability of your bread start being a little bit more variable, mm-hmm. still within specifications perhaps, but a little bit more variable. And that's a fantastic early warning. You go, okay, this is not this is not okay. You do that might be the time where you say, you know, we'll stop for five minutes, just inspect it. Oh, there we go. Our fans, our fans uncovered uh, is slightly covered, and because you will sheet never of know that. come from, you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, a sheet of in, in a baking. All right, yeah, but, know, whatever. Yeah. It could be whatever. Um, yeah, but that's probably a subject for a whole another discussion. But uh, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, anyway, this is one of those questions that's like, and I think the term I picked up on as the good summary is it's semantics is there's all these different tools and techniques and methods and processes out there and and stuff is focused on the ones that are useful and the ones that actually help you make better decisions. And, you know, if you really need to know the difference of all these different intervals and bounds and all other stuff, enroll in a university study program and (laughs) take a bunch of courses and, it'll expand your knowledge of all these things, which is great. There's no harm in that. Um, but it's also, yeah, you see people confusing these on occasion. So being aware of it and asking these questions makes sense. So hopefully the short little description of these and Chris, your uh, erudite, is that the right word? Description of these or elucidating. No, not, not hallucinating. Uh, <laughs> illuminating, uh, d- description of this, uh, hopefully helps a few people understand some of these differences and they can go figure out more of it in other places and, or send us a question. If, if, yeah. If continue that discussion. So you can head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash S O R. And there's a couple of ways you can get in touch with us there. Um, the question I got uh, uh, that sparked this discussion was direct. It was from the about page on Ascendo and, uh, and you can also find Chris and I and the rest of the hosts on LinkedIn. So there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. And so we look forward to your questions. So um, I'm going to take my statistics hat off and relax for the rest of the day, I think. See what happens. <laughs> well, I'll sleep easier. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for clearing that up a little bit. Thanks, Fred. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. To speaking of reliability, we invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.